0: You are listening to another episode of The Vincast, Australia's number one wine podcast. I'd like to send out a massive thank you to my good friend Sam, a.k.a. Old Mate Wine over in Perth, for leaving me a really wonderful review on the iTunes page and a five-star rating. Uh, it was fantastic to read uh, why he enjoys the podcast uh, and particularly some of the guests that have really inspired him in his endeavours as a viticulturist and winemaker. uh at- I would really love for many more of you to uh, to leave me a re- review and a rating on iTunes. Not only does it provide me with wonderful feedback uh, and helps me improve the show for you, uh, it also helps grow the audience and provides them with information about why people do listen to the podcast and what they enjoy. So please do go to the Vincast page on iTunes, hit that five stars and, and write about why you listen to the podcast or where you listen to the fo- podcast for that matter. Uh, so thanks very much guys for all your support and enjoy this week's episode on episode 95 of the Vincast I chat with Sue Dyson and Roger McShane from Living Wines and Food Tourist Hello there, Vincasters. Welcome to another episode of The Vincast. My name is James Scarcebrook, otherwise known as the Intrepid Wino, and it was wonderful to catch up with uh, a number of listeners of the podcast at the Handmade Wine Festival here in Melbourne over the weekend. Uh, it was great to, to be able to pour not only some lovely Italian wines, but also touch base with uh, some really fantastic importers, and also, more importantly, local Australian winemakers who are really doing some really exciting uh, new things with uh, grapes here in Australia, uh, including a number of former guests of the podcast. So uh, thanks very much much guys great to see you great to taste the wines and uh please if you get time get in touch leave me a rating on on uh, itunes because i'd love to hear from you I'm really excited for for you guys to listen to this week's episode. Uh, It was a fascinating chat that I had with uh, Sue Dyson and Roger McShane down in Hobart whilst I was there recently. Uh, Not only are they really well known for uh, their natural wines that they import from France, uh, a country that they visit quite regularly, uh, but also they are really a fantastic resource for restaurant reviews, uh, particularly in Tasmania where they're based. Uh, So I do highly uh, encourage people to check out their content online because it certainly was a big help for me and my partner whilst we were uh, eating and drinking our way across uh, Hobart and uh, some of the valleys so uh, please do enjoy this week's episode uh, stick around till the end so you can find out how you can get in touch with uh, with Sue and Roger uh, but until then I'll see you on the other side. Sue and Roger, welcome on the Vincast. It is wonderful to finally have you both on, uh, and I've thought, what an opportunity for for me, you know, to come down to Hobart to come and visit you. Uh, to taste some wine and to have a chat. So thank you for your time.
1: We love anyone who comes to Tasmania.
0: <laughs> I remember actually when I first, you know, uh, found out about you guys and the fact that you were importing wine. I was like, wow, that's amazing. They're importing wine into Tasmania and it's, it's you know, just a really good business Australia. model.
1: <laughs> we bring it, we ship it all across the most expensive water in the world and then we send most of it back again. <laughs>
0: uh, so um, I'm really interested to know um, what came first? Food or wine? As far as you know, a real passion. Well, both actually. Sue and I have been working together for about thirty years,
2: and um, when we first set up uh, our business thirty years ago, uh, it was actually an IT business. But we kept about ten to twenty percent of our time for food and wine. So even back in the eighties, we were heavily into uh, to both both food. But I guess
1: if you, it was probably more food than wine in the early days, and we we published a book for many years in Tasmania called A Food Lover's Guide to Tasmania. It always had a significant wine section in it, but just the title gives away the fact that we started (laughs) off with food.
0: Was that more to do with, uh, like, produce, or was it more about dining? It was both. It was both. It was
2: was, uh, restaurants, cafes... Places to drink and food to eat. You right. know. It was, produce, it was yeah.
1: producers and produce. So we used to write about the the uh, the produce that we thought were the things that if you came to Tasmania you shouldn't miss trying. Right, and then we'd talk about the producers where you would get it.
0: And at the time, was uh, did Tasmania have a very vibrant tourism scene? It not not as
2: vibrant as it is now. It was uh, it, it, there, there were visitors, but not massive numbers of visitors. They mainly
1: came to see the. Either the historical uh, the sites, sites so Port Arthur, like, Port cetera, Arthur yeah. or they came for the wilderness right? and then they enjoyed the food. But now there are heaps of people who come just because of the, the food. And That's the certainly what brought me down. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, apart from chatting <laughs> with <laughs> you lovely people. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I mean, there's a now it, and also I think everything's changed a lot in terms of the, the ease with which you can get here. And it's quite feasible, especially with you living in Melbourne, it's really easy to come to Tasmania for yeah, a not weekend. Yeah, ex- not expensive as well. Spend, mm. Come mm. to Hobart for one weekend and then a few months later come to Launceston. And yeah. There's, a, there's enough good restaurants to sustain it and there's certainly some really, really good produce around now.
0: Yeah. Um, what, was, what was Tasmanian wine like when you first started getting introduced?
2: Uh, well, there was very little. It was just really at the start of the wine business. Sure. There was wine. It was a novelty. Mm. Yeah, it was a novelty.
1: But, yeah. but there was a, but all the the big producers like um, Marilla and Pipersbrook, uh, they were all established. Okay. But it was I think the community didn't realize that there was a wine industry, whereas now everybody knows there's a wine industry. And the tourism part of it was nowhere near as significant. I would have to go back. The first year we wrote the book was in 1988. And I doubt if we had any vineyard restaurants in the book then, whereas right. now, um, over the last few years, what I mean. that's changed quite dramatically. But, but even
0: even on the mainland, you know, <laughs> there wasn't really much of a wine tourism scene. Apart <laughs> from things like the Hunter Valley or yeah. you went to South Australia. Or Barossa, or yeah. The Barossa and the Hunter but Valley. But even then, it was a lot of it was just sort yeah. of cellar doors. <laughs> it was like, come yeah. and taste my wines, and you buy yeah. it, and then you, and you Tas- Tasmania's leave. Tasmania's probably
1: grown in the same, like, through the same sort of time frame as places like the Yarra Valley and but Margaret the- River and...
0: But but the, the wine has become a lot more of a draw card now. Yes. Yeah, it's a yeah. major
1: part of the Tasmanian tourism mm. industry. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Mm. And, and so um, at the time, what sort of wines were you drinking when you started getting the Piper's Brook Riesling.
1: Yeah, we were very keen <laughs> on Piper's Brook Riesling. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> yes, we had Piper's Brook Riesling. Every time we had oysters, we had Piper's Brook Riesling. <laughs> was there much else down here at the time?
1: Well, there was uh, Marilla. We drank Marilla mm. wines and the oldest marilla wines in we used to drink the marilla wines with the cloth labels before they were retro before they were introduced <laughs> as a, a a blast from the past yeah we actually were drinking them yeah <laughs> in the original <laughs> and uh, and there were um oh there, there, there were a few in the tamer valley yeah like there was heems
2: was and, was one um all oh, right wow, okay and It was interesting because in those days uh, they were doing Cabernet Sauvignon, which didn't really ripen very well, Mm. but nobody knew enough about the wines to know that the Cabernet Sauvignon wasn't ripe enough until Home Oak came along and then they had this amazing bit of terroir where... The Cabernet Sauvignon did ripen and all uh, of a sudden you could so site-specific, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Well, I mean, the same thing mm. happened in, in Mornington Peninsula, for yeah, example. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, Main Ridge had Cabernet back in the day, you know, but that was sort of what quality wine was yeah. apparently. And it's yeah. like, well, if we plant Cabernet, we'll get quality wine. Yes. And then they kind of went, oh, maybe it's not the right climate for it. <laughs> That's right um so w- what was the reception as far as the the book um it was quite successful it was successful probably yeah, so it was, it was
1: not, not as successful as we imagined we couldn't believe that if there was a book written about tasmanian food and you came here that you wouldn't need the book and it was quite um, <laughs> a revelatory moment for us when someone very kindly sold some at the salamanca market and i still remember this was the first like in 1998 88. 88, 88, sorry. (laughs) And we're watching people and they pick the book up and they flick through it and they sort of talk to the person who was selling it and said, oh, that's really nice. But then they put it away and walked away. Yeah. (laughs) And it it was an interesting revelation that really at that time, maybe if you were lucky, 5% of the population would be willing to pay $10 Mm. to buy a book. Yeah. And only... Food. Really, yeah, we food wasn't just, you know, the somewhere between mm. one and five percent of the population. Mm. But isn't it so interested. funny? Isn't it and so funny for us? You know, we just in the same situation. We would have bought a book immediately because we'd been trained to buy the Age Good Food Guide from yeah. the early nineteen eighties. Yeah. The Sydney Morning Herald Food Guide. That's what you did.
0: But isn't it so funny how now, with the you know with internet and Google and stuff like that, people don't people yeah, expect to be able to get information and guides and stuff Mm. completely free
1: well the internet is why we stopped writing the book (laughs) not so much because of that as uh, being free but just because it made no we we started a website a tourist website and it made no sense to have this printed dinosaur of a thing that was out of date literally between it would go out of date between when we sent it to the printer and when we got it back yeah that was the most depressing thing one year when we took it to the printer and we came back and we sat in our favourite cafe and we was said what a relief we've finished the book and George said we've just sold the cafe <laughs> <laughs> so it was out of date it before hadn't even it, got to the printer before I got to the printer and it's probably even worse with the time that was something like where we only had to wait five days to get it back but mm. with a big print publication it's so hard so we gave up and where we're using we decided to use that website instead. Not
0: to mention the fact that, you know, a website anyone can access from anywhere. Yeah, exactly. and, and so mm-hmm. if they're planning a trip they can actually do the research beforehand. Whereas then, you know, they might have come down to Salamanca Mark and it's like, well, I suppose I should find out where, you know, other good places to visit you know, now they can actually like I did, mm-hmm. you know, I I, I went to to the website and, and and looked at you know the places you recommended yep. and planned my trip on that mm. you know um, so well thank you for looking at it <laughs> <laughs> no no please thank you um, so how did the um, how did you approach as far as the blog um, I, this was probably pretty early as far as you know what was there such a, a concept as a, a, we're, a blog we're pre blog we're, we're very pre blog we, we were it was an online guide
2: uh, yeah, basically yeah. Um, it was interesting in 1995. Uh, we were doing a lot of IT work, particularly for Microsoft, and we took a trip to um, Seattle. And one of the things that really stuck in our mind was we saw a bus with an advertisement on the back of the bus with a website, and that was all it was. Mm. <laughs> and uh, that really struck home to us. And we said, you know, this internet stuff is really going to take off. <laughs> <laughs> and um, the following year, 1996. We uh, set up FoodTourist.com and uh, started uh, putting reviews of restaurants all around the world because of our peripatetic travelling that we do. And, yeah. Um, uh, yes, it's it's still going today. So. So,
0: food tourists. You know, those are, are the probably two. Pretty important components. The the where did the tourism part of it? Go? Like, how did right. you guys start traveling to sort of for IT, to then go really, right? Okay, what sort of it. IT work were you doing?
1: Uh, well, I call it common sense. It's just <laughs>
2: <laughs> we're working mainly with with large companies and biz, uh, government organisations, helping them put in new software systems or design right. new software systems, developing requirements for those systems, and yeah, so. It's make, just, trying
1: to be the liaison between mm. the software developer and the, mm. the
0: customer to make mm. sure
1: they get what they want. Because so often people so you have to
0: be bilingual, basically. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. People don't actually realise that what they do, they think it's all um, self-evident, and then they get a new software system, and all half the things they do aren't there because they forgot to tell them. Mm. Because I didn't think they had to because for them it's so obvious.
0: So so it was essentially it was consultancy-based? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Did you find it difficult sort of doing that based out of Tassie?
1: No, Uh, we mainly used to go to Melbourne and Sydney. We used to work in, for most of the time, in Melbourne and Sydney, so maybe half the week in Melbourne and Sydney and half the week. Yeah. Yeah,
2: we, we did some other exciting projects like documenting a software system for sewerage in Malaysia, which was uh, an interesting job. And, well, the uh,
1: Malaysia
0: part's interesting, the sewerage's yeah. less, so. Well, But once again, because we were there for you know, six
2: weeks or so, mm. uh, we got to eat lots and lots and lots of really good Malaysian food, so yeah. it worked out well. And we also um, were involved in uh, the work went on to set up the uh, Australian electricity market. Right. And that led to a number of uh, jobs in the United States, both in Seattle, uh, California, and in um, New Orleans. So we spent a lot, wow. a lot of time uh, in the United States uh, working during the day and then eating great food
0: at
1: night. So We never how, missed a night.
0: Your <laughs> <laughs> dedication. Absolutely. How did you go about sort of documenting your experiences? How, how, do, you, how do you sort of... What's the process for you guys as far as well, constructing very, a review. It's mm. very different now mm.
1: because now with cam- with um digital f- cameras first and then phones, it's so much easier to keep a record right. of, of what you eat. So it's a, vi- it's a visual mm. reference mm. for well, you. Well, we do that and use the and these days use the the notes on our iPhone so that you can share the same notes so it replicates between the 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 way we've got it set up. The notes replicate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it just goes phone. into the so, cloud. Yeah. yeah. So uh what well, goes between the phones and to our server here but sure. it's um, it's a combination of words and pictures and okay. but in the end really it's about whether you love it or not. I mean, we don't have to answer to anyone about futurist because it's ours. Mm. So we don't have any uh, we don't have any objective criteria for what we do. We just write about the places that we really like.
0: And that and that mm. probably would have been a pretty important part of it was uh you know, up until then, you know, reviews were, would be going through an editor, mm. you know, mm. And, mm. and maybe you might not have been able to review everywhere you want to, or you might not have been able to be completely as honest as you want to. And I think I kind of feel like that has influenced um, you know, traditional um restaurant criticism now is that that because there are such things as Blogs, even though a lot of people argue that food blogs aren't as you know honest as they possibly could be, and you know they can be bought, for example.
1: <laughs> and and also that there is no, there's no sub editors and yeah. all the things that are the, the, the professionalism that you get from there's no journalism. working as a journalist. Yeah. your your journalism education plus your um the the infrastructure that you get from a big newspaper. We're a little bit different in that we're um, like I was an English teacher. Sure. So. so we didn't. Act- we actually started with a reasonable understanding, and we we wrote for a living, anyway. But mm. we wrote mainly wrote technical things, <laughs> food things. But
0: you still had to. You still had to write things that a write. layman could understand. We had to write coherent yeah.
1: sentences and know where, when to use a possessive apostrophe or not, and all <laughs> that sort of stuff. So, well, I that, think that, that's
0: something that Max Allen talked about on his episode of the podcast yeah, was the def- no, 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 not that, not, <laughs> no, 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 not, not that specific. Oh, no, no but really like about, thing. about the, pa- the fact that, you know, a lot of bloggers, his, his main issue is that a lot of them can't even construct a sentence. Mm. Mm. Yes. And, and,
1: and you're only allowed to not construct a sentence when you already know how to. It's like yes. you're, well, like some writers, some, some, uh, uh, critics say you can only make, sort of wines that we like, if you've already proved you can make a correct (laughs) one, It's it's like
0: a lot of people say, you know, um, it's only a really intelligent and and, um, very talented actor who can play dumb. Mm. Exactly. Mm. Yes, yes. Um, Anyway, we're
1: too boring to do that. We actually like to write (laughs) proper sentences with beginnings and middles and ends and we try really hard to put the apostrophes in the right place.
0: But when you started the website, you were able to say, look, this is our opinion. We're we're yeah. able to talk I mean, about the our, restaurants, our, and we want we can say what we want.
1: Our website is only useful, and I've always said this about every writer, that the critic is only useful to you as a customer. Critic, we, we don't really see ourselves as critics. We're more observers, I think. But mm. the, the, someone's writing is only useful to you as a customer when you would doubt that that person has similar tastes sure. to you. Sure, sure, and sure. And if sure. they don't, then that person is isn't particularly useful.
2: A, a really good example at the moment is in the 80s, and, oh, sorry, in the 90s probably, we were very influenced by Michelin in the, in Europe and so we would go to places that Michelin recommended. Yeah. And what we found in the 2000s was we were starting to get weary of the sort of places they were recommending because they were so formal and sure. etc. And then along came Fooding, and... All of a sudden, he was this alternate view that somebody was presenting, and we loved a lot of the restaurants that La Fooding um, were talking about. And also, they were doing something which I think a lot of Australian restaurant reviewers failed dismally at: they were giving equal weight to the food and the wine.
0: Yes, that's a big problem that I have is that I I, I read Mm. restaurant reviews and there might there might be one sentence, one sentence about about a cheeky little pinot or something. Yeah, (laughs) and and that's the entire. But they they write a whole paragraph about one dish. Yeah, Mm. yeah, and and when
1: you look at the bill, you you and I are perhaps slightly different from most people, Mm. but our wine bill is always more expensive than our Mm. than our (laughs) food bill. Much to the chagrin of my partner. But the thing that's so clever about le fooding is. It's, I mean, it's very much in the whole French natural wine community and it knows, the people who write Foodie know that all they have to do is mention two or three wine names, two or three domain names, and you as a customer will know whether or not you're interested in the wine in that restaurant. Well, in and the, that's sa- in the th- same
0: way that you can look at someone's portfolio of wines exactly. and kind of look at a few and go, well, I have a pretty good understanding about the sensibilities of that importer or that mm. distributor. Yes, And, you know, yes. so,
1: someone like, um, I think we're a bit biased because we do have for many years done work with Gourmet Traveller, mm-hmm. but Pat really gets it, Pat Norse from mm-hmm. Gourmet Traveller, mm-hmm. and he now devotes quite a bit of attention to wine, but he writes about it in such a way that, you know, this is a, for us, we only really want to go to restaurants that serve a reasonable range of natural wine. It doesn't have to be the entire restaurant portfolio, but we want to you know, know that there's things you, that yeah. we can drink. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we want a restaurant review to tell us whether or not that's the case. But, yeah. But most of the restaurant reviewers don't seem to have got the ability to do that within the number of words that they're willing to devote to one. You look at Lef- a fooding review and it's pretty formulaic, really. Mm. It's just a couple of sentences and mm. you can look at those and you can say, is this hardcore left or is this middle of the range natural or is this actually totally conventional but they really like the food so they've put it in anyway. Right. That's a real skill that, it's not all that obvious at the moment in Australian restaurant re-
0: reviewing. And it's really strange. I guess in the context of a dining experience, you know, I, I guess obviously the the, the, the culture of MasterChef has changed things a lot and, you know, Apparently, chef is even yeah. more celebrity. And, and this is something that I was talking about last night when we went to Aloft and, and my partner, she was saying, look, Oh, uh, you know, it's really interesting that they've got the bar set up here and the the kitchen's essentially open. And you can see it. I was like, well, that's that's actually a lot more popular now because people are so used to watching, you know, cooking shows and particularly mm. Mm. competition cooking shows. You know, to see that happening. Um, I can't even remember what I was going to say. <laughs> um, that, that, that when you are when you are in a restaurant, you know, when the food comes out, everyone's eating and they're talking about the food. Oh, what's your dish like? Oh, no, no. But in between the courses, you know, you're enjoying the wine. You are talking about anything but wine a lot of the time, unless you're a wine person. Yeah, unless you're a wine person or you know, in the industry, you know, a lot of the time you will just kind of, you know, I guess if you put yourself in the hands of the sommelier, they might suggest some stuff and you go, oh, this is a nice wine. But you'll talk about other stuff, what's uh, happening you know, in your life.
1: It would be interesting to work out why that is, but I think a lot of it is because a lot of wine tastes the same. Yeah. And that's, that's the wines that true, we're true. used to drinking, the wine that's like um, peaks and troughs of mm. extremes. Mm. I don't mean peaks and troughs in terms of good and bad, just in terms of extremes of flavour, yeah. texture, yeah. colour even. Yeah. And we have lots of fun trying to match food and wine by colour. That's a good experiment that seems to have given us some really good results. Yeah. And so the wine experience is as exciting as the food, but because there's a, uh, a, a amongst a lot of the wine industry, there's you're all aiming for the same gold medal, mm. then you do tend to make similar sorts of wine. So the differences are about the margin between 94 and 96 points, sort of. Yeah. not really interesting conversation. Oh, well, I, I know what
2: the margin is. That's New Oak. That's <laughs> <laughs> but, but it's interesting. The, the, the restaurant critics, um, and, and this is a worldwide phenomenon, but it, it's certainly the case in Australia. The restaurant critics describe the atmosphere in the restaurant. They describe the greeting. They describe the staff. Mm. They sometimes. Décor. Spin- Décor. The music playing. They always talk about the food. But it's the wine they most often leave out. Yeah.
0: It's, it's almost which, like they don't it, even drink whilst they're dining. It, 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 and there's there's bizarre.
1: And there's mm. also this strange culture that's developed amongst some of the food writing in, in Australia about, or some of the wine writing and food writing in Australia about the fact that the wine lists are full of restu- wines that no one's ever heard of. Yeah, because like, like, the that's sommeliers, a bad, like that's a bad thing. The, the sommeliers mm. want to hide the fact that the wine's what the markup is. Um, yeah. They'll be able to do that because so no one knows what the wine is. Yeah. so cynical and I wonder when that's written, if anyone when they write that has actually ever asked the sommelier why they have the wines that they have on the list. Mm. And all the sommeliers that we know in lots of really fantastic restaurants all around Australia, I could guarantee you that's the last thing on their mind. They're not choosing but, wines that are unfamiliar because they want to hide the price from the customer. They're choosing it because they think it's going to match the food and because they love the wine.
0: But also, mm. I kind of think of it as, well, why wouldn't I want to take the opportunity to try and introduce something to people that they wouldn't have tried before? Exactly. And it's so funny because so often, again, you'll talk about a dining experience and go, oh my God, you know, this particular, the construction of this dish, mm. like I wouldn't have thought of putting mm. that ingredient and in there. that's positive. Or, oh my God, I didn't expect them to play, you know, like... Late 80s, early 90s hip hop music, <laughs> or all oh, this really kooky, you know, um, thing on the wall. But they never say that about wine. Mm. Wow. Oh, I had this amazing wine and it paired really interestingly and like in a way that challenged me in some way. That was so surprising. They don't mm. talk about that sort of it, thing. It, they yeah. want it. They want the wines they know and they mm. know exactly what they, they're going to get.
2: And, and there's, there's a lot of, um, I I think the wine industry, and I'm talking about a lot of winemakers, I'm talking about wine writers, and I'm talking about wine sellers, they they grew up in the 60s and 70s, and that's where they still live. Yeah. And um, they, they want to be able to walk into a restaurant with their friends, and they want to be able to say, I know lots, yes. and they want to be able to call a particular wine. And if they are now looking at wine lists and they don't see anything that they know,
0: it, 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 I think it's it's both a question of I'm so confident with this wine list, but also. I know nothing, I'm completely, mm. uh, I, I don't even know. And, and, you know, and they'll just go, oh, we'll just have a Chardonnay. Yeah. And it's a shame that, yeah. that people, I think that They're is a, largely Jewish. a perception yeah. issue. Right. I,
1: I guess the only thing is that when you if you do have a wine list that you know that most of the population isn't going to recognise, then it's so important to have good stuff. Yes. Um, with us, I mean, you work with, um, w- with Italian wines. When we go into a restaurant that mainly has French wines, we're comfortable because... We spend a lot of time in France sure. with working because of the nature of our business and we know most of the regions, so at least we, we can see a lot of words that we recognise. When we go into a, a restaurant which is predominantly selling Italian wines or Spanish wines, it's much less familiar to mm. us and we're excited by that, but we are totally happy if we get a good sommelier and totally unhappy if we don't. If, uh, if we can't... If 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 we can't explain, we can explain what we like. Exactly. In terms of, and it's not going to be grape varieties, it's going to be how the wine was made Mm. and how the grapes were grown Mm. that we're looking for. Um, And we want someone to be able to understand that and give us something that matches those prerequisites. Mm. So, and if you get someone who's walked in, has been employed that day, and they're actually being trained on the job and they have no idea about the wine list but they're not game enough to tell you and call someone else, then that's bad. Yeah. That's the downside. And that really does come down to the the, the,
0: the skill and the experience of the sommelier. So you need – And their references. If you're
1: going to to sell wines that you know that most people haven't heard of, then you need good people on the floor. floor. Mm. And it's one of the reasons why in our business, we've never really pushed our business – to other, to restaurants, we wait for a restaurant to say, oh, I've, here, you've got some French wines, could I have a copy of your poff? Sure, you? sure. And then we'll, you know, we'll market with the rest of them once we get that initial invitation. But we know our wines won't sell by just being listed. Mm. They're yeah. only going to be sold if someone knows what they are and is interested in what they are and can explain them mm. to the customer.
2: It, which creates some funny situations at times because when we ask for a wine, maybe it's a oxidised Uh, wine or an orange wine. Mm. We sometimes get a sommelier coming over and saying, oh, look, do you really understand what Type of wine this is because you know we we are aging and uh, we we look like another sort of uh, might
1: write about us in a newspaper story if we were hit by a car and say we were elderly. <laughs> Roger Roger, Roger think, says that that's what would happen. That, I don't yeah. agree with that. But, <laughs> but
2: we're certainly these, not these, in the these eccentric Tasmanians. But, uh, <laughs> we're certainly not in the hipster category, and so they'll come over to us and say, you know, do you, know you you're really into? understand what you? are And we say yes, yes. We're heavily into natural wines, and we mm. like oxidized wines, and we like orange wines, and, and they're for, not necessarily. the same thing. And
1: provided they don't talk to us like a kindergarten teacher, then we don't mind that mm. intervention. Mm.
2: And But usually what happens, uh, and this has happening in so many restaurants around the world, once we establish that connection with the sommelier, they go all out and they say, well, look, if, if you're into natural wines, then we'll open these ones and yeah I uh, oh, look actually this is not on the list but you know it's something that I've, we I've went got to a yeah. restaurant in California many years ago and uh, in the late 2000s and uh, the sommelier did exactly that he came and asked if we really wanted that particular wine mm. and uh, he said look how about you leave it to me for the night then and uh, he ended up opening 16 bottles of wine all right <laughs> and, uh, and we good, know, that was a, when a we learned about the first
1: wine from the Canary Islands and hmm. 15 years ago there you go it's like a bit i describe it as a bit like a mason's handshake the whole international natural wine thing it's such a wonderful community yeah and it transgresses all frontiers it's uh when, when you get into europe the the boundaries that are being built up again now are not there with these wines and it's really a it's It's an associate, whether you choose as a winemaker, as a vigneron to be associated with that community. If you do, then you do join a community which is much broader than Mm. like with the French winemakers. There's more connection between a French natural winemaker and someone in Italy than there is between a French winemaker. Natural winemaker and a conventional French winemaker. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, it's very, Cause, cause, uh, it's so easy. You can do one degree of separation with just about anyone in the world.
0: I'm sure it's the same thing with you guys, but you know, whereas the vast, vast majority of, of wine consumers would be making the decisions based on region or based on variety. Mm. We, variety, we, especially we, in Australia. You know, we base it on on style, and you know, obviously, mm. in a lot of cases, the producer. You know, mm. because we might know that producer, mm. or or we've heard about them. You know, and and we know that we. Kind of get an idea about what we're going to get, even though we might be surprised and you know it's not what I expected, but it's still you know very very and interesting. And
1: it's funny in Australia that in the early days when we started importing wine, around about the same time as Andrew Gard, and we go to whenever we went to Sydney and we were presented with a wine list, we would say, "Have you got any of Andrew Gard's wine?" <laughs> we would we would choose our wine based on the importer. <laughs> yeah, of course. And yeah. so if we knew if it well, wasn't... it's the same with
0: me. Mm. Same with me.
2: Well it's like in Australia, you still Yet all the time people say, oh, I only drink X, like Chardonnay. Yeah. But there is more difference between an Australian Chardonnay, a normal French Chardonnay and some of the weirder French Chardonnays or a Chardonnay from the Jura, mm. than there is between a Chardonnay in Australia and a Riesling. Mm. It's, it's, uh, it's quite, uh, you know, Chardonnay just has so many different expressions around the world. It
1: just doesn't make sense mm. to say I only like the variety. or I I hate Chardonnay, or I hate Sauvignon Blanc, the great Mm. one. So many people who say to us, I never drink Sauvignon Blanc, but we've got some Sauvignon Blancs that we love.
0: What's so funny, like when Mm. I, I think the real start of my career was, you know, working in a wine in the Yarra Valley. And at the time, Chardonnay was, everyone was like, no, Chardonnay, Mm. Mm. it's terrible, Mm. terrible, terrible, terrible." you know, to the point where we would call people who came and said, I don't like Chardonnay as ABCs anything but chardonnay. You know, now that's sort of happening all the more Mm. with Sauvignon Blanc. Yes, that's exactly and it's got all.
1: nothing to do with the grape variety. Exactly. It's to do with the growing of the vine and how you choose to make the wine.
0: The variety is a part of It's a mm-hmm. component of the wine. I but I it mean, doesn't define yeah, what the wine I will I mean, be. there's a
1: reason why Sauvignon Blanc is a wine grape. There's something inherent, inherent, inherently good in the grape variety for it to have been used to make wine for so many years. Yeah, but exactly. Sonsier
2: well, has managed to survive for quite a while, <laughs> growing Sauvignon Blanc only and,
0: oh, and Pinot. <laughs> So um, what were some of the really influential dining experiences that kind of got you more interested in the kind of wines that you guys, you know, obviously love?
2: Well, one of the first times, and we... We didn't know. I know know. what you're going to say, and we we, didn't know. We had no idea. But in 1985, we had to go to an IT conference in uh, the United States, Mm -hmm. and Sue had this idea that we should go to this unknown restaurant in California that uh, people were starting to talk about. So we went along to Chez Panisse and Chez Panisse. At that stage, the food was all organic. So this is in nineteen eighty five and the wines um, were also certainly some of them were organic. And one of them was Domaine Tompier from Bandol. Mm. And we had that wine at Chez And although we didn't know that it was natural at the time, we knew it was pretty special. Yeah. And uh, but later uh, we started uh, drinking more and more wines that were in that natural camp. But it, it really wasn't until we walked into the Vervolle in probably about 2003,
1: three, two thousand. No, no, t- later than that,
2: 2007.
1: Oh, okay. and So I mean we were writing a story about Cava manger for gourmet traveller. Yeah.
2: yeah, And we walked in at about half past 12 for lunch, and every single table had this bottle of wine on it, the same bottle. And it turned out to be...
1: It was a Jean-Foyard-Morgan. Mm. And... We just thought, well, if everybody else is drinking this wine, <laughs> perhaps we should too. There must be a reason. There must be a reason, mm. yeah.
2: And we drank it and it was just so amazing. And it's very yeah. interesting.
1: You read so many stories about how people got into the sort of wine that we like and they either they either happen at the Vervolet or they happen with that wine. And Because Foyard was one of the mm. first people to really um, pick up Chauvet's ideas and, and make wine with our with minimal intervention.
0: Yeah. Well, I know that I'm sure a lot of people listening will, you know, often when I ask people who, you know, are in, who love natural wines, you know, was there a wine that sort of set them on that path and they might hear it and go, oh, I haven't heard of that one, I'll have to seek it out. Mm-hmm. As soon as I hear you, heard you say Jean Foyard, I go, oh, yes, I completely agree with that because, <laughs> you know, Jean Foyard is is one of the, you know, the really great, mm. you know, well-known names. Yeah, it was as, wonderful as to see
1: him in Australia for, for Rookstock, uh, Rookstock, yeah. yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah, I mean, of course, you know, Alex, his son, was here. Yes, Alex was here a long time. <laughs> it seemed like a long time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, yeah. Like, we like
1: Alex very much.
0: <laughs> and I think Alex but liked Australia too. very yeah,
1: admiring of yeah. his ability to stay up all night.
0: <laughs> but, so, but yeah. about, about
2: at that time also, we, we were lucky enough with a couple of friends of ours to to buy a house in, in Provence and uh, we'd sit there drinking uh, wines, many of which were natural at the time, and um, we, we didn't thought, know that.
1: We didn't know. No, we knew they were organic. Yeah,
0: yeah that's right. Well, that, I wanted to know. How did you kind of yeah. you kind of stumbled upon this? And when there's something about this we like, mm. we're not sure what it is. Mm. Did you kind of go to people and say, "Look, we tried this one. Really, we really like it. Can you suggest some stuff like it?" We're, we're
1: fairly. Once we decide to engage in something, we it's a fairly fast track. Yeah, yeah. I think we. But
2: there wasn't a, there wasn't a common language. In the mid two thousands, about natural wine, and so people were just starting to get the um, an understanding of organic and you know the whole natural fermentation, and right. No fining or filtering, etc. I think, uh, I think mm, Nick
1: Hildebrand was mm, about mm. the only person that we're aware of who was mm. really uh, could. I think probably the first time I heard the term actually mm. it might have been from Nick. Mm. Okay. not someone mm. in France, which right. is interesting. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And uh, so so it, it was very early days, but by, by sitting in France and drinking these wines, our palates changed. And two things happened. One was the, the fruit-forward wines of Australia, when we'd come back to Australia after drinking savoury wines in mm, France. Textural wines. Yeah, textural wines. Um, and we'd suddenly get these wines which obviously had been hanging on the vine for a lot longer in Australia and, you know, more sugar, uh, fruit more sugar being yeah, more, more alcohol, alcohol and a lot more alcohol than what we were drinking in France.
0: And so possibly a lot more alcohol than was actually written on the label. <laughs> yes. <laughs> which is <laughs> frightening
1: right. when you consider what was written on the label. That's right. And
2: so we, we thought, well... Maybe what we should do is bring a few wines in from the area around our house, which was on, in the Ventoux. We could see that as the
1: <laughs> only way we could afford to drink that that <laughs> used to.
2: And so we brought two or three producers in and um, then... So that was the start of the importing? That was the start of in the importing.
1: 2008, import. I think mm. it was. Right, okay.
2: And, um, but very quickly after that, we realised there was this beast called natural wines mm. being produced and was growing rapidly right through France. And so we made sure then that any new producers we got were uh, completely natural, and the ones that weren't we dropped off uh, the list. And um, over
1: time, it's a fairly it's a fairly Catholic sort of collection. Our our portfolio it's. um, for us, it, the fermentation has to be natural. The viticulture has to be organic.
2: Absolutely has to be organic. At, and at, that's at, about at it. Minimum. At a minimum. That's about yeah. it. Um,
1: we we would never... No fining. No, no fining mm. and generally no filtration. I think we've got some wines that get a light, particularly some of the light white wines get a light filtration. Um, well, I, I, okay. And <laughs> definitely... Just to, stop, just to stop
0: you there, one of the big... Uh, issues in in wine is what the definition for natural wine is. So, mm. And I think, f- for me, the the definition of natural wine is one of the most subjective things totally. in mm. wine. So I'm just interested to know what your definition of natural wine is.
2: Oh, that, that's relatively easy for us. Um, it's more a lowest common denominator it, definition. It must be organic or biodynamic in the vineyard. No... Yes. Um, no additions. commercial sprays yep. in the vineyard yep.
0: whatsoever. No herbicides, no, no. pesticides, no. Yep. and the, the, that's a no far. irrigation.
2: Uh, we we don't have any wines that have been irrigated. Okay, uh, in that, France, and it's allowed for the way. first three years or two years. Yeah, as far as propagation, yes. Yeah, yep. But after that, most appellations in France don't allow irrigation, whether it's conventional or natural. Yep. Yep. So. Um, So that
1: really hasn't been an issue for us because we mm. only import wine from France. It's kind of a given.
2: But but certainly no sprays at all. And that's a philosophical thing because what really struck us at about the same time we started importing was we were reading research which says that winemakers in France, or vignerons in France, sorry, have an 80% higher chance of dying from cancer than the general population.
1: Mm. And there's something terribly wrong with that when you consider that it's actually quite a physical occupation you're getting lots of exercise you're out out in the fresh air but you're more likely to die than someone who works in an office in Paris.
0: Well, I, I mean, I heard when I was travelling and visiting wineries in Europe, I heard stories about cooperative wineries, in, mm-hmm. you know, and chemical companies would mm-hmm. come in and and tell the growers you need to use these chemicals. They're not right. actually educating them, and they're actually throwing the, the, the chemicals with their bare hands. Yes, yes. Oh, that's, that's right. It, it's just well, the same just thing just has happened insanity.
1: with just general agriculture, say in Tasmania. Just
0: the lack of accountability mm-hmm. is astonishing. Right. With and and pesticide
1: use amongst vineyards in. Japan in France is enormous. Mm. Mm. So
2: so that that's the first thing is is they they have to be organic or biodynamic. So as, no far, spray as, so as far as the Secondly, growing. Secondly, yeah. that to be a natural wine, it has to be fermented naturally mm-hmm. with natural yeast, the indigenous yeast So, spontaneous
0: fermentation with spontaneous, its indigenous
2: yeast. Yes, absolutely because if you are adding yeast, you are adding in most cases you're adding foreign flavors to the wine. Yeah. Uh, and in fact, Many of the yeast companies actually boast on their websites: this buy our give you, yeast, yeah. and you will get f- tropical flavours, yeah. you will get guava, yeah. and yeah. so on. So it it must be naturally fermented, mm-hmm. um, no additions, so no DAP or no fish bladders or no and no, uh, no high tech mm.
1: uh, reverse osmosis or mm. any of those sorts of yep. gadgety things. Yep. Yeah.
2: So so no additions, no high tech stuff, and. So no fining because that's adding foreign substances yep. to the wine that so no you bentonite. can't. No, no bentonite. Yep. No, no uh, egg whites. No, no, none of those things. What about filtration? Filtration. Some of our winemakers do a very, very light filtration, but because most I, like, do settling, they just leave it in
0: the tank well, until it Well, that's the settles. thing. Like yeah. I, I actually think of racking as mm. a form of filtration. Mm-hmm. Like a lot, a lot of, you know, a lot of. The wines that I represent, they would they, they disagree, but I think well, just through gravity and you know maybe a little bit of natural temperature control that allows solids to sink to the bottom, and then you take the wine off the top of that. That for me is a form of filtration, but it's a it's a traditional no, you know it's a, a usually
1: requires some sort of sieving yes to be, to filter yeah. something yeah so natural settling
0: I think is fine yeah. But that, that's good. But now, but
1: now you're starting to get into the fine edge. Sure, where, sure, sure, sure.
0: Yeah. Well, and, and as far as and and the SF2? last
2: thing is uh, is it, well, it could be the first thing in Australia because normally uh, sulfites are added at the beginning of the process right. to kill the uh, natural yeast. Okay. Uh, we, we're not sulfite Nazis. We uh, we do have wines that have small amounts of sulfites added to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, we do have a lot of wines which have no sulfites at all. Yeah. And I think if you mm.
1: look at the uh, where our portfolio has gone over time, it's gone more and more towards wines with no added sulfites. Yeah.
0: And, and have you found that producers you might have worked with have also kind of pulled back on the amount of uh, sulfites Some, have, have, some,
1: some used? have gone down a path where when we first started, like Domaine Milan in Provence is a classic example, where when we first started working with them, they use sulfites in all of their wines, low levels by Australian yeah. conventional standards yep, and yep. French conventional standards. But now Henri Milan loves drinking wines without sulfites. Mm. So he started to make some for himself mm-hmm. and now more and more of the portfolio is no sulfites. Yep. So he still keeps some of the wines that um, are... There's a classic white wine that's one of his... The, the wines that the domain is known for that is at the moment still made the same way, but probably... I would say with by the next vintage, mm. that will have gone as well. So he's gradually gone totally away from sulfites. I guess the other thing is, and we have some wines that are, are made with new wood, but that's like, I don't know, at the moment there's maybe 250, 300 individual wines on our list, and I'd say maybe two of them have seen, three or four of them have seen any new wood, and it wouldn't, I can think of only one wine we've got, which is, Sitting, waiting, waiting. We haven't released it yet, and we've only got tall bottles, which is made in 100% new wood. And mm. there's no way we would sell it at the moment because it goes against everything we believe in. Sure, sure. Because yeah. wood is a, a an additive. Yeah, new what, new, new, wood new wood is, wood. is an cha- additive. It changes
0: the 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 expression of yeah. the the vine and it and, adds and, and, and the soil. Yeah. Mm. yeah, So yeah. it
1: goes against the the minimal intervention. So concept. so we
2: so basically we we want low sulphur, like 10 milligrams or 20 milligrams maximum in Mm -hmm. wine or Mm -hmm. none. But one of the things about no sulphur is uh, you have to be a very good winemaker and you have to really understand the winemaking process. And you've got to be a very good vigneron too. Yeah, absolutely. To to not use sulphur because you have to understand when the tannins have got to the stage where they are acting as a preservative because it's the tannins that preserve the wine and you've got to if work you don't use and you've got to mm. work
1: with really good grapes mm. and you, right. and if you've had a difficult year you've got to you've got to go through rigorous sorting mm. to try to get rid of the grapes that may put the wine at risk when mm. you're not using sulfur to protect it because sulphur is a great risk reducer mm. and like you know I, we don't have any issue. If, so if people want to, if people are making a living and they don't want to put their living at risk and they see not adding sulphur is putting their living at risk, I can understand why they do that, but just that we don't particularly want to drink those wines. I now find it really hard to drink most conventionally made Australian wines and it's a shocking thing that this has happened, but there's just too much sulphur. My body just says no. because well, sulphur in new wood. It's mm. trained well, it's trained to rebel against it because we don't ever drink it. And I, of course the I other find, benefit is that we just don't get hangovers.
0: For me, filtration is the biggest issue that I find. I, I am so tired of finding wines just too clean mm-hmm. that they are devoid of any real expression. Yeah, it's like stri- um,
1: stripping out all the interest. I
0: remember reading, um, I think it was Alice Faring's second book, And she talked about meeting someone at um, UC Davis. and I can't remember if he was one of the professors or if he was a winemaker himself, but he talked about doing all these things that he could then filter out or he could extract in some way. It's like, well, why add them at all? So, well, that's just the way that you you do things. I I find that to be totally abhorrent, you know, like anything. And and, and this is something that I talk about, um, that when you take something away, when you are filtering, or you know, or, or, or um, you know, not allowing a vine to find its own um, balance with the, the ecosystem and 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 build up its own protections, you then need to replace that with something, and that might be more SO2, or that mm. might be, or you, know, or you might, or mm. you might have to you know, do something that hides flaws. And that, to me, again, is totally abhorrent. I, I can't, you know, I, I and so more and more I just want to t- taste wines that, you know, for lack of a better word, are alive. Um,
2: well, so- it, it, it's interesting that this idea of having a clean, clear wine has come about because of wine shows in Australia where mm. marks are allocated for uh, cleanliness. Clarity. Clarity. Yeah. Clarity. And it's just such a stupid, stupid thing because it, it has nothing to do... With, well, what it's doing is it means you have to take stuff out of the wine and you're changing the flavour of the
1: wine. We find yeah. that people really understand, people who, not, who don't, aren't obsessed with wine but are, they are interested in having a conversation about what all this means, if we talk about honey. Because most people understand juice. the difference. Mike Benny
0: talks about juice, mm. like yeah. apple juice in particular. Yeah,
1: but you, and, and that's a good example. Yeah, but and honey is the same. Where you can see it, it's so visual. The difference between a really clean honey that you might get in the supermarket, where it looks perfect, it runs, it runs easily, easily, yeah, and it's you can see through it; it's clear and, it and doesn't go hard when you put it in the fridge. And something that's raw, where that's been um, just been produced without any chemical without without any heat mm. then and there'll be bits of pollen and maybe some bees wings and a few other bits and pieces in in it but people most people who are interested in eating well know that that is better for that that is more delicious yeah. and it's also better for you yeah. than something that's highly extracted that's what nature And nature's exactly giving the you. same thing applies to wine i mean we're
0: that's strange it's we're so, just strange.
1: so convinced that and you talk about with yeast you talk about the difference between Sourdough, true sourdough bread, which is made from a natural ferment, and not the not the sourdough bread you get at the fast food places that say it's sourdough but mm, it really isn't, mm. and and commercially made bread that where you add the yeast, and you and you think when you eat a, a slice of a true sourdough bread versus a slice of commercial white bread, yeah, when you put it in your body, you know one is good for you and what the other one isn't. You can just feel the difference between the two things. And it's exactly the same. With and, and,
0: and people talk about, you know, obviously with food, about how a product that hasn't been commercially produced, your body is better able to break that down. Yeah. Like why would you feel any differently about, you know, an, an alcoholic beverage that you happen to well, put there, in your body? Well, there seems
1: to be a lot of evidence with um, things like with a natural fermentation you get fewer of the amines like histamines. Yeah. and when when people say that they react to sulfites, who knows what it is that they're reacting to? Because there's mm. so many things that you can legally add to a wine that don't go on the label, and so many people exactly hear people saying, "Oh, I hate, I, I, I'm allergic to sulfites." I can only drink white wine, not yeah. like red wine. And you look at conventional wine and there's always far more sulfites in the white wine yep, yep, yep. than the red exactly. wine. Well, all um,
0: the, the argument they make or yeah, the example they give is, is like, do you have any idea how much sulfites are used in dried fruits? Mm. Mm, yeah. but, but, of course, but all the, dr- other- dried
2: fruits is a really bad analogy. And you know, it is one that the it's a common one. Things. Yeah, that's right. But, it, the reason why it's a bad analogy is that in dried fruits, there's no alcohol. No. In wine, yeah. there is both sulfites and alcohol. Yeah. And your liver thinks that sulfur is a worse poison than alcohol. Mm. So it processes that first, yeah. which means the alcohol stays in your body longer. Which means you're more likely to get a hangover.
0: Well, mm. I, I do love that that the great story about the, the you know the origins of the natural wine oh, bar in Allison. Paris. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that, that the reason they wanted to drink more of those wines is because they didn't want to have to suffer the big hangover the no, next day. So, um, and we, we, we <laughs> have tested that hypothesis to almost destruction.
2: Yeah, and yeah.
0: Yeah. it's really hard We're to get a, get, get a hangover
1: unless mm. Matt Young's here and we drink sake. So. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> um and as, as far as um when when you were importing um particularly you know this these you know slightly more esoteric wines from France did you find that the the history that you had with food tourists uh you know and and you know cataloging Australian restaurants did, did that help you guys as far as selling the wines into you know the restaurants?
1: Uh that's a good question. I know I think actually we've the best for, in terms of how we made, um, how we got to know restaurants outside Tasmania because the majority of our wines are probably sold in Melbourne and Sydney. Mm. Um, in the early days, I think we actually have a lot to thank, uh, Luke and Luke Burgess from, from Garage Eats because Luke and Katrina and Kirk, the restaurant that they set up in Tasmania in 2010, was probably the first restaurant that was entirely natural wine yeah. in, a, in Australia, yeah. and we kind of, we went through this process of learning about these wines a lot together, Right, and people came to Garagiste, and we met a lot of restaurateurs from interstate, because they came down here, we met Sommeliers. So Garagiste was
0: like a real destination for people. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. I yeah. remember meeting... It was certainly um, the first
2: totally natural wine list in Australia.
0: And so in the same way that they were coming down to, to you know, discover this amazing... You know, cuisine that, that Luke was, mm. you know, putting out. They they kind of at the same time happened to be introduced to well, all these amazing natural wines. Rose and
1: were come, Yeah, exactly. Uh, right? That's how we mm. met mm. Matt, Matt and Linda from mm. Black Market Sake. They came to show wines that. Before Garage East opened in 2010. Have you found that since then also... Richard Hargraves and Annalise, we met them because they came.
0: Have you found that since then chefs have become a lot more interested in the wines as well? Yeah, I think chefs chefs
1: like Mm. the flavour of natural wines. They like the savouriness. They like like some of those oxidative characters Mm. that... Mm. Like in the Jura wines, you get so much umami, which yeah is exactly, so attractive. and they love umami
0: themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so why I wouldn't think, they? not want to drink it, chefs it as
1: well? that are pushing. Sometimes it's the chefs that are pushing. Yeah, of course. We had this. We used to have this. Um, a couple of funny experiences where we were. It was a uh, restaurants where the chef was ordering our wine. Mm. Uh, there was a a wine buyer who would buy all the other wines, but the chef would make sure that there was some of you that. You have to have this one because mm-hmm. And then there have was a classic off. example yeah. in the early days of the Duke where in Sydney where um, all the pet gnats that we bought from Philippe Bonnard before there were any pet gnats really in Australia. Yeah. Um, they all went to the Duke and they were all eaten, well, they were mm. all drunk by the kitchen staff, by mm. Mike Eggert and mm. Tom and all these, uh, and, and Mitch... All these it, chefs were drinking the pet nats. So.
0: It's it's pretty funny, actually. Um, you know, just last year at Rootstock, I found that the most fervent people at the event were chefs mm. rather than sommeliers. Well, well
2: the, the and this is something that a lot of people uh, overlook, and it was certainly the case in Tasmania with garagistes. The people who were puzzled by garagistes in many cases were winemakers from Tasmania. Sure, and but. It's because chefs who go out of their way to source clean, organic produce, they naturally want to have Wines that meet that same philosophy, yeah, and, uh, in, a, in, a, and in the same f-
0: way that they they look at a plate and they can see mm. those ingredients mm. and they can taste it in their mouth. Right. They want to know that what I'm putting into my glass, it, it, I can feel like it actually is, you know, expressing where it's coming from and what it's made That's from. Right. And a
1: lot of it comes down to what you were saying right at the very beginning of this conversation about uh, the Master Chef has and all those programs have educated people so much more about food, but. Wine has stayed in the same place, yeah, wine really hasn 't not a lot has changed in terms of what people know about wine. The majority of people know about wine now compared to what they knew fifteen years ago. They still like Chardonnay or they don 't or they like Sauvignon Blanc or they don 't or frighteningly, they are red wine drinkers or white wine drinkers, which is a completely incomprehensible but thing see
0: here 's the big difference. Wine businesses, wine companies, are much, much bigger than any kind of chef's influence might be.
1: Yeah, I know that, and so, a so that's a
0: really good they don't. They, you know, big wine companies.
1: Don't want anything. They're the change. status
0: quo. Mm. They don't want anything to change. Exactly. So they're going to do whatever they can. Yeah. And and you know and mm. and we all know what they're like. They they kind of go, oh, you know, orange wines or, mm. or no so two mm. or not filtered wines. They're faulty. And and I still have people saying those kind of wines. You open them, they fall over. You know, okay, in a couple of hours, well. it, which is. <laughs> The opposite. Which,
1: uh, it's yeah, totally some, some outrageous. Some will last for days, and exactly. some you need to drink them within an hour. It's uh, you know, just it, the nature of the wine. And but, the- but
2: we've also had twenty-five-year-old natural wines when we go to visit exactly. Our they, oh, they don't age.
1: What,
0: out, what? an
1: outrageous <laughs> assertion it's
0: just to make, Cupid. Yes, it's it, it, so it, stupid. Suit, it suits the big companies. But to you say know, that. and
1: but the, and also the really sad thing is, um, I feel really. I don't know what the answer to this is, but. I think that the whatever criticism we may have of some of the restaurant writing, because it doesn't get into wines enough, at least the restaurant writing traditionally in Australia, the writing about restaurants has been well-funded by the owning institution. Yes. So I noticed that John Lethian said today that he spends $50,000, that the Australian spends $50,000 a year, I presume he means, for him to eat Sending, in restaurants. restaurant. Yeah. So, you know, that's a big budget. The wine writers from what I can tell, don't get anywhere near that budget because they don't have to because the wine comes to them. And yes. You see photos. But of at the phone. same
0: time, they're not paid in the same way and a lot of them will say, I can't completely rely on, you know, my wine writing to to survive. Oh, no, no, but, no, but, no that's but, but right. The, but there's no... And that's what Sue is saying. In the, yeah. in
1: the restaurant, the, there's, there's still this culture that says that if you're going to write about a restaurant, you should be independent mm. and you should make your own decision about which restaurant to go to. And and if you're in, in the classic way of writing about restaurants in in Australia and in America and in the UK in France with Michelin, you will go to the restaurant several times. Someone will fund you to go to the restaurant several times before you make the decision. There's money, or,
0: or someone else might might be sent to mm. you know confirm what you yeah. might have so, said. But
1: with wine, there's no need for that budget because the wine has always just comes in. And, yeah, and as you say, the wine industry is very big and. The wine industry will do the education programs and the bigger the wine business but, but, the more they can afford yes, to you know allocate you get, a marketing little budget little to send in, samples out like ours and we just don't do that I no mean, we can't afford to and we choose not to i'm not going we're not going to send wine on a um, unsolicited unsolicited to a wine writer if someone asks us for something and there's a reason why they're asking for us so we'll bend over backwards mm. to help but we're not going, we just can't, I mean, we're, we're really lucky because Windsor Dobbin in Tasmania is a wine writer and he gets lots and lots of samples. And every now and again we go down to his house at Signet and into his back shed and we get all the boxes, which we use for all our <laughs> one, two and three boxes. And it is, he's got a shed mm. full of sample boxes. It's unbelievable. And I just, it's still breathtaking. And I look at that and I think, there's no way that we could do this. Yeah. Mm. And so all these interesting wines that all the small importers and it's really a culture big cultural change what's happened with so many people like sommeliers who might bring in a small portfolio of wines and there are lots of little people like us but those wines are not going to become part of the general conversation it's only going to be a few people like what you're doing is really important with this program and mike benny and max allen Hmm. there are people who will who, who seem to be interested and want to write about these wines. But,
0: but personally as well, not necessarily, you know, because it's expected, it's expected of them as a wine writer. They are personally you That's know, right. invested and interested in these kinds of products. Uh, and so, some
1: of them just don't lend themselves to the traditional way yeah. of writing about wine where you give them a score. And Mm-mm. Absolutely. Because, they, because they're off. It's like trying to... And, and that's one of the things the
2: wine industry hasn't caught up with. When, when you hear them talk about the sommeliers or the natural wine movement and how it's something being imposed by the sommeliers on the public, the public who are seeking out natural wines, they are doing it because they're interested in something different. Yeah. And we've been going to these wine shows and the public tastings for, you know, coming on towards 10 years now. Not one person out of hundreds and hundreds who flock to these shows, has ever asked us whether any of our wines has a gold medal. Mm.
1: Yeah, the <laughs> they are not the like...
2: slightest bit interested in in the show movement or anything else. They are interested in the wines for their own sake. They're interested in the story mm. of yeah. the wine. Yeah, and the... Events like mm.
1: Handmade that's coming up for its third year in Melbourne yes. next weekend and Mental Notes in Sydney the other day and um, the, the granddaddy mm. of the more Rootstock. Mm. These are... Uh, and now we've got one in Tasmania in June on the 19th. I, I can give a, a plug that's, for this. That's at Franklin, that's, isn't it? Yeah. It's so mm, exciting. Mm, I a lot just of saw the, that. M- Heaps of some of the most interesting uh, Australian winemakers are coming. And, yeah.
2: But once again, that'll be a sellout. And it, it, it's the public who are
0: asking to go for those things. If they're not. It's no imposition. <laughs> Do you know what the big difference is? Is that from the producer to the consumer... Everyone is connected. Yeah, Whereas right. yeah. in, the, in the commercial sense, okay. mm-hmm. a wine producer, like you have your grape grower, then you have your winemaker then you have the marketing and sales right. team then you have the distributor then you have the retailer and then you them. have the consumer mm. or you have the sales rep co- selling to the restaurant exactly and how connected are is the final consumer mm. with the original yeah. producer so in our totally case, disconnected one degree of
1: separation
0: so that is the really important collaborative element is mm. that we're not competitors. Right. We are all supporting each other. We are a, all supporting this, yeah, you know, just, this part of the industry. Whereas the big wine companies, they think of other wine companies as competition. That's a really good uh, observation. And w- w- when we
2: walk into a restaurant with our wines to show them our wines, they know that we have sat in the kitchen of the winemaker and tasted their wines yeah. in their home. Yeah. And, you know, it's a direct connection and we know the stories. And and,
0: and, and you go into their restaurant Mm. and you'll buy wines of other importers and other local producers Mm. and they know that this is part of a community. It's a
1: community and we're all wanting to educate everybody. Exactly. Mm. And we all share the same goals. And it's true in France. We don't know the culture in Italy, but I imagine it's very similar. But the the community of the producers in France is fantastic. They're all Mm. wonderful friends. And I remember... One of the first tastings we did was um, in the room next to the gallery next to um, Cumulus with... Um, Arc One. Yeah, mm. it, at Arc One with Giorgio de Maria mm-hmm. and Andrew Gard and Matt and Linda with their sake. And um, and I remember looking at... Andrew was pouring Thierry Pusillet's wines and we were pouring Hervé Vilmaard's wines. And, you know, those two people, they run events together. Yeah. And I just loved it that we were doing the same thing. Yeah representing their wine side by side. And it's that connection as friends and colleagues Mm -hmm. in Australia. It's well, they have lunch together
2: once or twice a week. too. It's kind of
1: it's it's we're trying. I think we're we're representing the philosophy of of what they of them.
0: Yeah, and if we weren't also busy and, and a little bit further away, you know, whether we're in you know Hobart or Sydney or wherever, I'm sure that we probably would all be the same. But look, whilst I've been down in Hobart, it has been really lovely sitting down with you guys, and you know, I'm, I know we've spoken before at various events and stuff like that. But it's great to be able to sit down with the uh, with the recording device here <laughs> and 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 have a chat about these things. Mm, so I really so do great. appreciate well, your thank time. Thank you for what you do. Mm. <laughs> It's my pleasure. Mm. Look, uh, as far as um, website and social media accounts, if you'd like to uh, to share with the listeners how they can uh oh, the can website keep in touch is you. Living
1: Wines, LivingWines.com.au, and because we're not really good at marketing, the Instagram and uh, name is Food Tourist, mm-hmm. not Living Wines. Yeah, wonderful food and, wonderful
2: Instagram account, I must. say. And the uh, Twitter account is Food underscore Tourist, and the. Website for our restaurant
0: guide is foodtourist.com. And Facebook? Uh, F- Facebook is Living Wines. Facebook slash Living Wives. Wives. Fantastic. Wives. And look, I look forward to, uh, to catching up with you again in Melbourne yes, we'll see at, you next uh, week, yeah. at Handmade. Yeah, we look forward to it. Guys, thank you very much for listening to another episode of the Vincast. I have been James Scarsbrook, otherwise known as the Intrepid Wino. And of course, thanks again to Sue and Roger for their time and for opening some wine for me whilst I was in Hobart. Uh, You can, of course, follow me on social media. You'll find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook as Intrepid Wino. Uh, And also the podcast is on Twitter at The Vincast. Uh, Come to the Intrepid Wino YouTube channel and you can watch uh, some of my Let's Taste videos where I open and talk about Australian wine. Uh, And always, please do subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Player FM or Stitcher or any other podcast hosting app. Uh, and that way you'll get the new episode as soon as it becomes available. Uh, and uh, it's a really great way for you to share your impressions of the podcast by leaving a rating and review. All the information is available at IntrepidWino.com. So do play, come, uh, pay me a visit uh, and you can see some of my writings and some of videos that I've posted. Uh, and why not get in contact with me, thevincast at gmail.com. Looking forward to uh, you listening to next week's episode. But until then, bye.